lame ducks, high stakes negotiations, and divided government. How does it all work? And will the next year of American government work at all? This is Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL Radio, available wherever you get your podcasts, if you're into audio podcasts, also available wherever you get your video podcasts, if you're into that kind of thing. I'm Matt Robeson, and to explain all of this, how it will work, won't work, and what might happen in the coming weeks and the coming year, I have an outstanding guest, a return guest. I'm really happy to have back Ryan McConaughey. I could give you the resume version The shorthand version is he used to be Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's right-hand man on policy. He's the guy who used to have to herd the Democratic cats together to try to pass policy in the U.S. Senate. And that's what's on the menu right now. Ryan, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be back. And it's great. And it's great for me to be able to say that Senator Schumer is going to be majority leader, not just now, but heading into next year as well. So surprise, we are going to have a return of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So uh, that actually that's great also for all of our listeners and viewers, because your expertise, while it's evergreen, is even greener. All right. So we're recording this in December of 2022. So what I want to do first is talk about the next few weeks. Some of this, because what I then want to move on to is the next year. So look, some of this discussion may get resolved in in due course in, in the next few weeks. We'll find out what happens to sound like Donald Trump for a second. But I also think that this lame duck period is because it's a case study in a lot of themes in a lot of lame ducks, which is usually about how you wrap up the year and especially the fiscal portion of the year. So The focus right now in Congress seems to be the funding question. How are we going to fund the government for the next year? And first of all, just to set things straight here, you hear terms thrown around like continuing resolution with the abbreviation CR. You Mm -hmm. hear clean CR. You hear not so clean CR. And then you hear omnibus. Could you just walk us through what those different flavors are, what they mean? Sure. It does get arcane quickly, but I guess the best way to get into it is when people talk about the federal budget every year and that's how it gets shorthanded in headlines. The federal budget is actually made up of multiple individual bills that cover individual subject matter. And those bills can pass separately. Usually they end up getting thrown together at the end of the year. When you're talking about sort of an omnibus, that is you take the dozen appropriation bills, put them in one big bill and basically make it harder for someone to stand in the way of something because it's all moving together. Everyone has a piece of something. And also time is up. And one of the dynamics of Congress over the past many years now is one of the ways to try and maximize your leverage is you hold out as long as possible. You have to fight for everything you want as long as possible. So that's why nothing ever gets done in advance is because everyone is always playing for more time, hoping something's going to break their way. When the stakes are up, the pressure's on, that's where you get a little bit of power to get done. So when you and I were young pups on Capitol Hill as congressional staffers, There used to be, you pass a bill to fund the agriculture department and all of those programs, and you pass a bill to fund the labor department and all of those programs. Now it all gets crammed together into an omnibus usually. Yeah, this is not new. I have to go back to the days of Robert Byrd to when they were moving bills on an individual basis. So this is typical. And it's also the, the fiscal year ends on September 30th, but they almost never fund the government by September 30th. They always do. And maybe this is a bridge to talk about what a CR is. They always do a short-term bill 
that basically says, we're going to strike the date on the old budget. We're going to add a new date that goes from September 30th to, in this case, it's December 16th. None of the money is going to change. And just let's keep the the can down the road. But we're going to, we're going to, but we're not going to make any decisions. We're not going to go up, down, except when they do. And this is where within those sort of date change bills, they can have something called an anomaly where they make one little tweak on something or they can do, so you have the omnibus that is all new bills. You have a CR that is all date changes, and then they have a weird hybrid that they can do it sometimes, which is a CR and an omnibus, which, because Washington must condense and acronize everything, is a cromnibus. It's much less delicious than a cronut. It is only by design partially It's it's equally bad for you, though. Yeah. (laughs) where they take some of those 12 bills and they do new bills and the other ones where they're too politically controversial or they run out of time and they just have to kick the can for an entire year. And that's how they move forward. So it's a blend. So if you hear in the news, we're going to do a CR and you hear some people say, I want a clean CR. What they mean is just change the dates. Straight date change. Yep. We've even seen CRs that go for a year And you're just, you're like zombie legislation, zombie government funding. It's whatever we did back then, we're just going to keep sailing in the same direction. So that's a CR. And then you've, alternatively, you've got the omnibus, which is we're going to make a whole new funding bill, whole new set of decisions for everything all in one package. And then it's going to be presented to members of Congress to vote on. They're going to have 20 minutes to read it. And it's, are you in favor of this? Yes, maybe. I don't know. And then you've got the unholy love child of the two. Yeah, I think, and, and look, I think the we're going to put a bill on the floor. Twenty minutes, no one reads it. Everyone makes a floor speech about that. In reality, most people know most of what's in the bill. They know what they care about. It. That's a little bit. I do think that's one of the things that it used to be your job to summarize these things. Right. Yeah, so right. that part is it's good rhetoric, but I also think it contributes to people being skeptical of government in a way. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. Right. I, I, I should reform. I should do my part here. You've got these different flavors of what could happen, and there's been all the rage right now, this is the short-term topical piece of the discussion here, has been around what is going to happen, speculating. But I think that's an interesting exercise if you remove the this week nature of it and you think about it as just a generalized proposition. It is an interesting exercise in trying to understand what different people, different power centers, priorities, and incentives might be. So maybe you could walk us through that. Sure. In terms of people's incentives for this lame duck session, where do you think the various power centers are coming from? What do you think they want to achieve? And that'll lead us into what do you think they are going to achieve? Sure. So I think to frame this specific to the funding bills, I really want to hammer one of the key differences, which is that when you're making a date change, members of Congress have priorities. They're trying to achieve things. President Biden famously said, show me your budget, Show you, I'll, I'll show you my priorities. And when you just kick the can down the road, by definition, you're not making changes and you're not, you're losing control. So you actually have in the Senate, you have both of the top appropriators retiring They have things they want to achieve in this bill. You have other members of Congress who are leaving, and this is their last chance to make a mark, put some money towards something that they think is important, something they've prioritized, whether it's a legacy thing, whether it's just an issue they care about. And when you just punt, there are that you lose that power, you lose that ability to make change. And so there's a real incentive to get things done. And I would say if you go, I'll start with Senate Democrats, because that's what I know best and go through. I think you're looking at Senate Democrats, they are they are in the majority. 
They have unified government for the last time they're going to have it for a couple of years. And you have an outgoing appropriations chairman. So they have a, and they also want to fund things like the infrastructure law that they passed earlier that needs appropriations to follow through on those commitments to keep building things that are very popular. So they clearly have incentives to get an omnibus done, a, a true funding bill. The Senate Republican incentives are not that different in that you have a retiring appropriations chair. I do know for a fact there are a lot of Republican senators who also just want to see things get done. And they may not be as ideologically far away from House Republicans, but as we will talk about, that could be a source of instability in the days and weeks and months to come. House Democrats, this is the, they are on the way out. This is their last chance to write a bill for at least a couple of years. Very clear incentives there to do an omnibus. If you are Kevin McCarthy and the House Republicans, you are one running right now a leadership race. He's not speaker yet. He's the presumptive speaker. I predict he will be speaker, but he has to win that election. And right now he doesn't have 218 votes to do that. And part of that is maintaining leverage going into the next Congress and holding the line on spending priorities that Republicans tend to want to do. And the House Democratic majority is slim enough that you don't want to try and do it on just Democratic votes alone. I mean, if somebody catches a cold, the majority is in jeopardy at this point, basically. You know, that is a limiting factor. And I think it is, the crystal ball game is always very difficult here. I think you could certainly see at least a cromnibus. I'm going to be a little bit optimistic today and say that at least some of the new bills will get done just because there is so much desire. But but if McCarthy decides that he has to hold the line because of his internal dynamics, then we might not get there. So it's I think there's a lot of desire to get an omnibus done, but it's far from a slam dunk. All right. Let me just read back to you two important things that you just said. First of all, I could hear in my mind our viewers and listeners thinking like, why does it really matter? What's the big difference between a continuing resolution and an omnibus anyway? And what you just said is, look, imagine it a little bit like you're going to take a long road trip. Let's say you're driving from, I don't know, Des Moines, Iowa to New York City, and you have your GPS set up and it sets you going and then it stops updating. That's a little bit like being in a CR. It's like you're moving along in a direction that's generally right. It's generally what you thought you would need to get somewhere. But if it stops updating, you're going to miss turns. You're going to miss ramps. You're going to miss the fine-tuned directions. You're probably going to get pretty lost before long. And that's a that's the incentive that these departing appropriations chairs, that these departing power centers, and that even people like Mitch McConnell have they, they want to put their imprint on this. They want to update the GPS. They want to fine tune exactly where they're going and have their priorities reflected. So that's number one. And then the second thing, this is really interesting, is that Kevin McCarthy is in a very unusual political position where he gets the reality of the political situation that he's about to be in if he manages to hold together the majority and become speaker in January. And he's going to have so many fires to put out. He's going to have so many cats to herd that what he really wants is to get this off the board now, to get this done. He does not want to have this hanging over him and to have to try to marshal this together or face a government shutdown in January and in February when he's just consolidating his leadership, hopefully for him as speaker. So he has this weird set of incentives where he wants it to get done but he can't make it look too hard like he wants it to get done because people on his right flank whose votes he needs to become speaker may not be on board. 
Yeah, I think that's, I don't want to get too far into his head in terms of what he wants or what he doesn't want, but you could certainly, you could certainly see where his life would be easier to not have to have this, but we've already seen another case of something that was potentially on the table for lame duck that Republicans and Senate Republicans have done this too, have taken off, which is the debt limit is if you want to, again, go down the rabbit hole of technicalities, I'll try and sum it up. It's basically, it's America's credit card. And if you hit the debt limit, you have maxed the card out and that could have massive economic ramifications for interest rates and a whole host of other things. And for some reason, Congress has to actively raise this every once in a while, as opposed to it happening automatically. And so Republicans, have already said we that time is coming again, but we're not going to do that in the lame duck because we want to hold out and use it to go back to 2011 when they drew a line on the debt limit to push for spending cuts. They've already mentioned Social Security and Medicare. So that is the type of thing where they could be playing with fire next year, and it could certainly be a headache for McCarthy, but he's not empowered. Even if he personally wanted to, and I don't know him, I don't know his mind, but he, even if you assume that he might personally want to save himself a headache, he, that's not going to happen in this lame duck. So that's going to be something that Congress has to deal with next year. And just to put a finer point on what happens if we do end up not updating the GPS and in a CR, could you give us a sense of what does that mean? Because it's, it's so hard to wrap your head around a $1.5 trillion budget, right? And it's it seems like, all right, if you're providing the money and you don't do a lot of fine tuning, does that really matter? So I guess I'll ask you, does it really matter? Yeah. And it's actually, it's more important than the considerations we've been talking about. We've been talking about sort of member goals and priorities in Congress, but this has real impacts on the people who are supposed to be receiving this money to do what the money is for. Just a couple quick examples. You actually had a really high profile letter from the Secretary of Defense this week saying, look, if the DOD is under the CR, it's going to affect our ability to train because we can't do, there's a general provision in the CR that's no new starts, which is what it sounds like means you can't do new things. You can't do new programs. You can't start something that you haven't already been spending money on. And in the military context, that can mean anything from investing in military family childcare, housing, training exercises, base renovations, a whole lot host of things. In other programs, it means that the professional staff who administer these programs can't plan. So for one example, there is a predominantly Black institutions program at the Department of Education that is meant to support institutions of higher learning that serve predominantly Black populations. In the past, the Department of Education, it's been, it's delayed the ability to get that money out the door to help those schools meet their mission, because there's uncertainty about how much money is coming, when it's coming, can we hire more staff? Another example is there's a rural rental assistance program where it's basically housing assistance for people in low-income rural communities. The technical staff there has not been able to get the money out the door, figure out what those grants are going to be to states. The process of administering these programs and actually getting money, whether it's to institutions, local governments, people in the form of an energy assistance program, that all gets fouled. And so it's, it's not a shut down. The money is still there. But in terms of government serving people best, serving the most efficiently, improving programs, really meeting the mission, it's handcuffs. Got it. Yeah. I think for people who were really into this topic of how the mechanics work and the, the real value that you get out of the federal government, read The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. I, I That dives into it perhaps better than any single book that I've ever read. And it really gives a sense of there is so much value that's created by expertise and assistance through federal programs and federal agencies. They do all kinds of functions that are invisible to most of us that really support American business, American enterprise, American innovation, science, technology, that keep us safe, that, that keep our food clean. And 
you know, when you start to mess with these things through, yeah, we'll just keep doing what we did a year ago, the world changes. So not only can you not start new programs, but like taking the DOD, the Department of Defense example for a second, we have a little war going in the world that we didn't have a year ago. And that change, the changing world situation, that matters for how the Department of Defense is thinking about what they need to do for our defense posture, how they work with allies, how they train our troops, what kinds of procurements for military hardware they need. You could just see from something like that, that you really do want to update. If you're going to spend $1.5 trillion, you want to spend it on for people who are maybe on the more skeptical end that you were alluding to before of the federal government and what the federal government does. Yeah, there are some criticisms that you could lob at the federal government. There is estimated to be something like 1,400 different sub-agencies and programs run by the federal government, but it's a dirty little secret that no one knows the exact number because it even like experts like you, trying to tally all that up is very hard. It's confusing. There's yes. a lot that goes into a $1.5 trillion funding bill. But I think it's been exhaustively documented that there is tremendous value that is provided for the American people in all of these things. And so you just, you want to do that as well as possible. Is there waste? Is there, are there mistakes? Are there errors? Are there programs that, you know, aren't super efficient, not run well? Of course, Yes, it's a giant federal government with 2 million civilian employees, 2 million military employees. Not everything is going to be perfect and exact and work super well. But if you want it to work well, if you want to get value for the money we're spending, then you should want to pass the omnibus bill. We're coming up on an interesting time. We've seen this movie before, Divided Government, especially in the Congress, also at the state level. And Democrats are going to hold the Senate. Republicans are going to hold the House. Democrats hold the White House. And so it could be a prescription for chaos. It could be a prescription for creative innovation. It, a lot of things could happen. What do you expect to happen? Yeah, so I, I think there's definitely conventional wisdom that gridlock is going to set in. And certainly the ceiling on activity is going to drop. But that doesn't mean that nothing is going to happen. There, there are always issues that come up there between the things that Congress must do, like we were just talking about the funding bill in the last segment. There are issues that are emergent where you can find consensus and nothing never happens. I'm not sure that was the most articulate way of phrasing that. Don't use no double negatives, man. But I think when we're thinking about what we can look at next year in this alignment, there before we go issue by issue, there uh, some of the dynamics that will be in play are that, that one. First of all, like things do happen. Members are still there to work. They have jobs to do. And they're always tend to be looking for solutions for the most part. I think one of the key things to look at is we've had this alignment before of a Democratic Senate and Republican House. And at that time, I think we're going we're gonna to see how Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries work together. You have two new leaders in the House. Speaker Boehner and Speaker Ryan effectively worked in a de facto coalition with then minority leader Pelosi. They had Freedom Caucus members. They had members that were just no on some things. And so they had to go find votes with her. And they they essentially did function as a coalition government. You have two new leaders, and you could argue that 
the McCarthy majority at 222, which is what Pelosi has been dealing with, but also has maybe even gotten a little bit more unruly than what Boehner and Ryan had to work with. That dynamic in particular is, I think, really what's going to set the parameters of what's possible going into the next Congress and how those two can build a relationship and work together. And I think it's possible that they will on some things. You start out with the must-do things like I like I mentioned, the and you look at the fact that with divided government, reconciliation is off the table. So much time and energy was spent trying to get the Inflation Reduction Act. It's basically two years, and it was all Democrats because they had that tool available to them and all the court contortions over the bird rule. I'm old enough know. to remember when it was called Build Back Better. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, the in the Senate, you look at how the CHIPS bill came together. You look at how the infrastructure law came together. The fulcrum of power is really going to reside in gangland, meaning the bipartisan gangs that well, always come together. So um, we used to talk about there's a gang of 14. You're saying that you're saying that groups of senators in this kind of a closely divided environment, what's going to be the binding constraint on the Congress is what you can pass through the Senate. And that means that if you can have a coalition of senators that can get to 60 votes over the filibuster threshold, then you can get things done. That's going to be a major determinant of what happens. And those, and you look at the member, the Warners, the Cinemas, the Cassidy's, the Young was a major player on on the Chips Bill from the Senate side. Those groups of senators who can deliver, particularly ten to twenty Republican votes. It's not because you can't assume all Democrats are going to be for every bill. There is always a little bit of crossover there, but that'll be the determinant on the Senate. So you have the McCarthy Jeffries relationship, and you have the gang dynamic that's going to be set the center of gravity of power in the Senate. And the places where those two things, where you can get things through those two checkpoints, that's what will happen. So that's interesting. So it suggests to me that the areas. You were just alluding to the chips bill, so the semiconductor bill, which was really about, it was about semiconductors, but it was really about broader industrial policy. And the infrastructure bill was about industrial policy. It seems like there's a through line here of how do we support American economic growth, international competitiveness, and business? So are you projecting that might be a fertile area for a little bit of bipartisan progress in the next two years? Yeah, they're all about the economy and they're all also about international competitiveness, specifically on the chips bill vis-a-vis China. And those dynamics are going to carry through. Economy, we're still at a place, top line numbers are good, but people are very conscious of inflation. That was the top issue coming out of the exit polls. That's not going to go away. So I think that those issues will definitely drive a lot. I actually think one area where you could see things bubbling up is in the broader area of competition policy. And by that, I don't necessarily mm. mean international competition policy, but a good old fashioned antitrust or new wave antitrust, actually, because you look at all the power players, everybody's got an oar in the competition policy waters. Earlier this year, the Biden administration sent out this sweeping executive order tasking agencies to look at everything from over-the-counter hearing aids to consolidation in the tech sector to meatpacking. You've got Senator Klobuchar and Senator Grassley leading a bipartisan group that has a bill about online choice and innovation, basically access to apps, tech consolidation. You have growing kind of tech skepticism on the Republican side of the aisle in general. 
You have Senator Booker and Senator Tester have a bill on ag consolidation. You have the FTC looking at potentially the biggest tech acquisition in recent history with Microsoft looking to buy Activision that makes Call of Duty. So you have all of the various quadrants and players have been looking at some form of competition policy. And there's a lot, the, the question will be if any of that stuff congeals in a way that actually moves in a package, but you have a lot of people driving into a similar theme that way. That's really interesting. One of the things that you do see around antitrust competitiveness and especially tech policy competitiveness is strange bedfellows, right? You have Democrats who in general you would think about as other kind of against consolidation. They're against big business being able to wield more market power but some of them are from major tech areas and are a lot more supportive of big tech companies. On the other hand, you have Republicans who generally take a laissez-faire approach to these kinds of things, who for various reasons are a lot more skeptical of big tech. So you're saying that's one area, in addition to some other areas of competitiveness, you mentioned agriculture, you mentioned even hearing aids, medical device technology, but especially in tech, tech, is that that one area where we could see some unusual coalitions and maybe gangs emerge? Yeah. On that one in particular, I think you already got a little bit of the gang with Klobuchar and Grassley at the head of it. Klobuchar has been pushing for her tech antitrust bill about innovation, online competition to get a vote. It doesn't have 60 yet, but it's certainly well on its way to 60 and that could carry over into the next Congress. There was just also Senator Klobuchar again, just held a hearing this week on the Kroger-Robertson's grocery merger. And because these things, because we are in an environment where people are feeling their pockets books pinched, And you do have on the Republican side a rising sort of tide of economic populism. I do think that's going to be one of the Trumpian legacies that you even see in a a number of Republican members who may be looking to throw their hats in. That'll be another dynamic. In the Senate, you're going to have a bunch of senators auditioning to be president over the next two years and getting in the primary. You have a sort of more economically populist Republican Party than you've traditionally had. You have a focus on consumer issues. You have the crypto meltdown. Ticketmaster. Oh, Ticketmaster, right. The Swifties are outraged and and, and Congress takes notice of those types of things. I know we want this this show to have a long shelf life and it would be like, oh, maybe people won't remember in six months what happened with the Taylor Swift tickets. I have a prediction for you. I think they will because I think the problems are going to keep rolling on and on. Getting Taylor Swift tickets is going to continue to be a problem. I suspect she will continue to be popular in six months, but, but you do have, so there are a number of, and again, it's not just tech, but you do have the, that's one of those areas where the factors are aligning. It's not just there though. Senator Romney has been involved in with Senator Bennett and saying, Hey, look, we had an enhanced child tax care credit. Maybe it won't be the same thing that we had in the rescue plan bill, but we do want to help working families. So let's work on that. And even if things don't get across the finish line, as from your time there, legislation takes time. And like the, this Klobuchar Grassley tech bill, they did a lot of work on it this Congress. It does not look likely to pass this Congress, but they're not, but they'll be they won't be starting from scratch next mm, year. And that right. could be possibly coming up. And they're also what I call like the bipartisan bigs. And those are things that are not every year bills, but like their time is up. For example, the farm bill is up next year. And that is a bipartisan interest in food, nutrition policy. Every member from every part of the country has an interest in the farm bill. Clearly, obviously, the members who represent ag states. FAA reauthorization is up next year. Everyone wants to keep the planes in the sky, keep air traffic control functioning, have that transportation system working for us. And so there'll be an interest in in making sure that bill gets done. Things will move. It won't be as much and it won't be as 
necessarily, as some would say, transformational in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act. It won't be as much of one party's agenda, but that doesn't mean real work isn't going to get done. Well, and you also mentioned this dynamic where you start working on something and there's a virtue to that. It's not obvious to casual observers, but you put in a lot of legwork, especially at the staff level, folks like you and me might really advance a ball pretty far. You don't lose all that progress going into the next Congress. There's also the category of things where you couldn't quite get something across the finish line, but the issue still exists. One of those is permitting reform. There was supposed to be a side deal with the Inflation Reduction Act for Joe Manchin, where they pushed through permitting reform. And there were folks on the left, the further left was against it because they saw it as primarily helping oil and gas interests. But there were people on the left, but maybe more toward the middle who were saying, hold on a second, this actually helps renewables And let's not forget that we're still in an energy environment where there has to be some interface between oil and gas resources for generation of electricity, for your sort of baseload of electricity all the time, and more intermittent resources like wind and solar. And so permitting reform seems to be something that are you expecting to see a piece like that maybe come back, but this time under more Republican auspices? Yeah, I think that's definitely an area where there will continue to be work, because I think we'll see, even if Manchin gets a bill through in this Congress, I don't think it's the extent of it. And you're exactly right that delivering on the emissions reductions and the climate goals of the IRA, I think everyone acknowledges we need to be able to build things more quickly. Can't take years and years to get things built. And the issue will be finding exactly what the balance is. Some of the concern from Democrats is that that doesn't mean that you just go etch a sketch on environmental protections. And so that's why you have a lot of focus on better timelines, but quite frankly, more resources sources for permitting agencies, fewer redundant permitting issues between state and federal. And I, I'll stop going down that rabbit hole, but suffice it to say, Energy in general is going to continue to be of interest for both parties as a consumer issue, as a climate issue, as a national security issue. And they come at it from somewhat different emphases, but there are Republicans who are now focused on climate. I don't think you're going to see like a carbon price get done next year, but there's a thing called a carbon border adjustment, which is basically a competition measure that is, all right, look, if we're going to reduce our emissions, we want the products coming in here to be cleaner. We're looking at you, China. That is also a China competition thing. So that could be a kind of sequel to chips that Republicans and Democrats get together to work on. Permitting, border adjustment. These are technical energy issues, but they're important to goals that both parties have in terms of enhancing our energy and climate goals. So I think that that feels like it. we'll see. I would personally love to see something get over the line on those in the next Congress. And you know, we'll see what happens, but I expect that work will take place on both of them. Let's put a bow on this section of the conversation that you might call the hopeful view of the next year, <laughs> which is there are there's a saying in Washington, there's no permanent friends and enemies. There's only permanent interests. And both parties do have some longstanding permanent interests in a set of issues, and there's real potential for them to come together. And I thought I heard a hint in what you were just saying that, look, for people who think of themselves as being in the middle-ish, in the, they're maybe they're not part of the, the 5 or 10% most left, 5 or 10% most right, they see some virtue in the positions of either party. I thought I heard a hint from you a moment ago of, hey, we might get some outcomes that reflect 
some compromise and that have fingerprints from both parties on them. And that might be an outcome that most people, and that's the good news version of it. I'd like to end the discussion right there and say, Merry Christmas and to all a good night. But I'm not going to do that because there's a bad news version of this. And you've lived through this. Mitch McConnell, we saw this movie in 2009, famously said that his top priority was to make sure that then-President Barack Obama was a one-term president. Here we are with Joe Biden as president, and there's going to be another presidential election coming up. And you could see Mitch McConnell starting to say, hey, really want more accomplishments accruing to this Biden guy? Maybe we should throw some more sand in the gears. That would be one thing. And then you alluded a moment ago to the fact that there's another old Washington joke. Every U.S. senator wakes up in the morning looks in the mirror and sees the next president of the United States looking back at them. There are a lot of Republicans who are in that position right now. And there's still speculation going that maybe Joe Biden doesn't run. And there are a handful of Democrats who are also thinking along those lines. So what do you make of those potential dynamics and the bad news version of this? Is it possible that those will conspire and will end up with a gridlock situation? Yeah, no, and yes, and to be clear, I'm looking for there. There will be a, a lot. Many bills will be introduced. Few will survive. Like I'm not. I, I don't want to be overly rosy about. It. I was trying to find the areas of and look because some of these things are not. The farm bill is important and it is a headline driver in in the states and where it matters when it happens. But it's not going to need leave the national news every night, and it's not going to be the type of thing that drives political ambition. So you kind of have to separate the governing track from the political track. And mm-hmm. certainly, the Republican House will pass a ton of legislation that is looking at issues that they think are going to be politically damaging to the White House. There, there'll be constant hearings over there, pulling administration people in. You do have a, you will see a lot of activity around quote unquote woke capitalism and bringing in companies that are doing ESG and attacking that stuff. It's in the Senate will we'll certainly push legislation on issues. I remember we had a, a fair shot agenda when I was there that was paycheck fairness and bring jobs home at reshoring things, things that we thought were good policy, but Republicans were not going to give us those in a in an election cycle. And so they were put up and you have those fights and you know where you're probably going there. I do think it's, you look at the, that's why I characterized it as must do's and then big, typical bipartisan stuff that's that's less sensational. And then people will probably do foundational work on other things, but there will certainly be a lot of, a lot of, a lot of punches thrown along the way. Part of what you bring up there is I had Rachel Bade and Karen Demersion, the authors of the book Unchecked about the two Trump impeachments on the show about a month or two ago. And one of the things that they brilliantly highlight in their book is that there's a lot of, these aren't robots who work in Congress. They're human beings who get hurt feelings and get miffed and get agendas. And sometimes they're missed phone calls and crosswise agendas. And I, you raise the possibility that there are going to be a lot of investigations and a lot of things thrown around, including about the president's son in the next year. And you could... See in an environment like that, where it would become hard for the White House and for Democratic allies in Congress to feel great about working in a bipartisan way on certain issues in that kind of a setting. If you had to, if you had to lay some money on the line right now, do you think that the destructive, gridlocky kind of dynamics are going to be more powerful, or do you think the constructive dynamics are going to 
holds sway. Here, let me see if I can bring our conversation full circle by going back. Remember when we were talking about the continuing resolution, I said there's a thing, no new starts, which basically means you can do existing things. It's tough to do new things. I think the political dynamics that will shape this Congress will apply. It'll be a no new start. So things like a farm bill, that's an existing, that's a renewal of an existing policy and you can make tweaks on it or whatever. But big new initiatives like we've seen the past two years, they are not going to be happening. So you won't have new new policies like a, like in the Inflation Reduction Act writ large, right. a major educational reform that is led by, it's looking at a student, like a, you won't have a legislative equivalent to the student loan debt relief, that type of thing. That makes sense to me. And maybe to, I'll continue your theme of bringing the conversation full circle. And I'm going to draw an even bigger circle than you. You were on this show about a year ago, and you said something totally fascinating that I call the McConaughey principle, which is... I was asking you about, could we fix the dynamics inside Congress that tend to lead toward gridlock? And you said, look, you can't fix the inside incentives without fixing the outside incentives. Representatives, senators, they respond to their political incentives and the pressures on them from the outside in the races that they have to run, the elections they have to win, determine how they behave once they're elected. And so your prescription was, we have to worry about those outside dynamics. And then inside Congress will tend to take care of itself, at least a little bit more. It's an interesting thing that we just went through in the midterms, where there seemed to be a real swing vote. There seemed to be some ticket splitting. There seemed to be Republicans who said, this is too far. I can't go there. I'm going to, I'm going to jump sides and Democrats too. It seemed to maybe be a reassertion of the swing vote and the political center. So this is me trying really hard to get us to a hopeful note. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing that maybe those outside incentives are beginning to get a little bit better and maybe will lead to better inside behavior. I certainly hope so too. A lot of people are trying to confirm their priors all over the place. If you are if you are on the left, you are looking at some of these races and saying, "Hey, look, we had we had very progressive candidates win and that shows that that agenda is okay." versus, "Yeah, but they're running against election deniers and that you have to balance that." And so there there is a fight right now amidst reorganizing, getting ready for the next Congress to define the results of the election. And that is still happening. And I, and to me, I share your interpretation of those, but that's an active discussion right now. Um, I'm hopeful. There's reason to be hopeful about it. And I think that we're already, people are already looking at 24 with it being a national year. And there are, on the Democratic side, there are a lot of senators who are up. It's, a, it, it's an exposed map for Democrats in 24. That's the best so. euphemism for it I've heard so far. Exposed. <laughs> I think nightmare is the way yeah. the Politico put it. But sure. so I think that I think it's too soon to tell. But but I hope that you're right. Look, I always hope I'm right, but I'm realistic about it too. All right, I better let you go, Ryan McConaughey. Thanks so much for all the insights. Always a pleasure. Really appreciate being here.